Lesson 3 for April 11 to 17. Who is Jesus Christ? Sabbath afternoon, April 11. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Son Jesus came that each of us could have eternal life. But there are so many questions about who he is. As we look in the book of Luke this week and the other Gospels, we pray that our hearts may be open to listen, that our minds may be clear, that we may understand who Jesus is, not just as a person or as God, but as our Saviour and as our friend. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Luke chapter 9 and verse 20. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Let's read that again, Luke 9 verse 20. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. Who is Jesus Christ? This question is not a philosophical or a sociological gimmick. It gets to the heart of who humans are, and even more important, what eternity will hold for them. People can admire the works of Jesus, honour his words, extol his patience, advocate his non-violence, acclaim his decisiveness, praise his selflessness, and stand speechless at the cruel end of his life. Many may even be ready to accept Jesus as a good man who tried to set things right, to infuse fairness where there was injustice, to offer healing where there was sickness, and to bring comfort where there was only misery. Yes, Jesus could well earn the name of the best teacher, a revolutionary, a leader par excellence, and a psychologist who can probe into the depths of one's soul. He was all these, and so much more. None of these things, however, comes near to answering the all-important question that Jesus himself raised, Who do you say that I am? It is a question that demands an answer, and on that answer the destiny of humanity hinges. Sunday, April 12. Reactions to Jesus. Read the Gospels, read the New Testament. All through these books, incredible claims are made about not only what Jesus did, but even more important about who Jesus was. Of course, what Jesus did powerfully attested to who he was. These claims that he is God, that he is our Redeemer, that he alone is the way to eternal life, demand our attention because they are full of implications that have eternal consequences for every human being. Question. Read Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through to 30. What caused the people to react as they did? And also look at John chapter 3, verse 19. 
Luke chapter 4, beginning at verse 16. So he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then he closed the book, and gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. So all bore witness to him, and marvelled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, You will surely say this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then he said, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent, except to Zarephath, in the region of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. So all those in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and they led him to the brow of the hill on which their city was built, that they might throw him down over the cliff. Then, passing through the midst of them, he went his way. And John chapter 3 verse 19, And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Even John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus, and the one who announced Jesus as the Lamb of God, had doubts creeping into the depths of his soul. He wanted to know, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? Luke 7.19. Notice, too, that Jesus does not answer John's question directly. Instead, he points to acts that cry out in witness. The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. That's verse 22. One could argue that Jesus didn't need to answer John's question directly. His deeds and actions gave ample testimony of who he was. So to finish today, in a sense, the answer that Jesus gave might have caused John even a bit more consternation. After all, if Jesus has the power to do all these incredible things, why am I languishing here in jail? Who hasn't, amid their own personal tragedies, wondered sometimes similar? If God has all this power, why is this happening to me? Why is the cross and all it represents and promises our only answer?
Monday, April 13, Son of God Son of Man and Son of God are two names used in the Gospels to describe who Jesus is. The first indicates God incarnate. The second points to his divinity as the second person of the Godhead. Together, the two phrases invite us to ponder the miracle of Jesus Christ, God who is both divine and human. It's a hard concept to grasp, but that difficulty does not in any way take away from this amazing truth and the great hope that it offers us. Question. Read Luke chapter 1, verses 31, 32 and 35, and chapter 2, verse 11. What do these verses tell us about who Jesus really is? Luke 1, verse 31, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And verse 35, And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. And chapter 2, verse 11, For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Saviour who is Christ the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verses 31 and 32, the angel links the name Jesus with the Son of the Highest, to whom the Lord God will give the throne of David. Jesus is the Son of God. He is also the Christ, the Messiah, who shall restore David's throne, not as an earthly deliverer, but in the eschatological sense, in that he will ultimately defeat Satan's attempt to usurp the throne of God himself. To the shepherds, the angel announced that the babe in the manger is the Saviour who is Christ the Lord. That's chapter 2, verse 11. At the same time, the title Son of God not only affirms Christ's position in the Godhead, but also reveals the close and intimate relationship that Jesus had with God the Father while Jesus was on earth. Yet, the relationship between the Father and the Son is not the same as the relationship that we have with God. While our relationship is a result of the work of Christ, both as Creator and Redeemer, His relationship to the Father as the Son is as of one of three equal eternal partners. Through His divinity, Jesus maintained the closest possible ties to the Father. From the book Desire of Ages, page 442, we have this gem. Jesus says, My Father, which is in heaven as reminding his disciples that while by his humanity he is linked with them, a sharer in their trials and sympathizing with them in their sufferings, by his divinity he is connected with the throne of the infinite. And so to finish today, what does it mean to us that Jesus is in the fullest sense God? Though this truth is filled with many implications, one of the most amazing is that Though God, Jesus condescended to not only take upon himself our humanity, but to offer himself as a sacrifice in that humanity for us.
We are talking about God here. What wonderful hope does this truth have for us because of what it tells us about what God is really like. Tuesday, April 14, Son of Man Although Jesus was fully conscious that he was both the Son of Man and the Son of God, as we read in Luke chapter 22, verses 67 to 70, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe, and if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me or let me go. Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. Son of Man was our Saviour's favourite way of self-designation. The other instances in which the title appears are in several other verses. Daniel 7, verse 13, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven, he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. In Stephen's speech, in Acts chapter 7, verse 56, and said, Look, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in Revelation chapter 1.13, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. And Revelation 14 verse 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. The title appears more than 80 times in the Gospels and 25 times in Luke. Luke's usage shows the author's deep interest in the humanity of Christ as the universal man who was sent by God to proclaim the good news of salvation. Ellen White writes in Selected Messages, Book 1, page 244. The humanity of the Son of God is everything to us. It is the golden chain that binds our souls to Christ and through Christ to God. This is to be our study. Christ was a real man. He gave proof of his humility in becoming a man. Yet he was God in the flesh. End of quote. The use of Son of Man in Luke provides various insights into the nature, mission, and destiny of the incarnate Jesus. Firstly, the title identifies him as a human, as in Luke 7, verse 34. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a winebibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners... With no worldly address or security? Luke 9, verse 58. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Second, Luke uses the title to assert Christ's divine nature and status. 
for the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath in Luke 6 verse 5. Therefore, he is also the creator with the power to forgive sins, as you read in Luke 5.24. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Third, to accomplish this redemptive mission, ordained by the Godhead before the foundation of the world, as we read in Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by the Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, as we read so often in Luke 9.56, For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. But redemption itself cannot be completed until the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and be raised the third day in Luke 9.22. This self-awareness of the Son of Man about the path he had to tread and the price he had to pay for the redemption of humankind from sin reveals not only the divine origin of the plan of redemption, but also Christ's submission in his humanity to that plan. Fourth, note how complete a picture of the suffering Messiah that Luke portrays in the following passages. Firstly, his foreknowledge of the cross on Luke 18, verses 31 to 33. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished, for he will be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. His betrayal... In Luke chapter 9, verse 44, Let these words sink down into your ears, for the Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men. His death is a fulfillment of prophecy in Luke 22, verse 22, And truly, the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. His crucifixion and resurrection, as we read in Luke 24 verse 7, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And we compare that with Luke chapter 11 verse 30, For as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will be to this generation. And his role as the mediator before the Father in Luke chapter 12 and verse 8. Also I say to you, whoever confesses me before men, him the Son of Man also will confess before the angels of God. Fifth, Luke sees the Son of Man in last day terms as the one who returns to earth to reward his saints and to wrap up the great controversy. 
Luke 9.26, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. And chapter 12, verse 4, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. And verse 24 of chapter 17, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. And verse 26, And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. And verse 30, Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And Luke 21 verse 36 Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. And finally Luke chapter 22 verse 69 Hereafter the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. In short The title Son of Man incorporates the multifaceted aspect not only of who Christ was, but of what he came to do and what he has accomplished and will accomplish for us in the plan of salvation. Wednesday, April 15, The Christ of God Question. Read Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 27. Why would Jesus have asked the disciples a question whose answer he already knew? What lesson was he seeking to teach them, not only about himself, but about what it means to follow him? Beginning at verse 18 of Luke chapter 9. And it happened, as he was alone praying, that his disciples joined him, And he asked them, saying, Who do the crowds say that I am? So they answered and said, John the Baptist. But some say Elijah, and others say that one of the other old prophets has risen again. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said, The Christ of God. And he strictly warned and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Then he said to them, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and is himself destroyed or lost? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God." Who do you say that I am? Verse 20. The question that Jesus asked 2,000 years ago still haunts history. People have given many different answers. A great teacher, 
a profound ethicist, an embodiment of truth, an edifice of self-sacrifice, a fearless prophet, a social reformer, a great model of everything a human being should be. But no answer short of the confession that the original question drew from the lips of Peter will do. After revealing his authority over nature, Luke 8, 22-35, now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out, but as they sailed he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. His power over demons continues in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, which is opposite Galilee. And when he stepped out on the land, there he met a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds, and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine were feeding there on the mountain. So they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus, and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. His might over diseases... Luke 5, verse 12, And it happened, when he was in a certain city, that, behold, a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus, and he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then he put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he charged him to tell no one. But go and show yourself to the priest, and make an offering for your cleansing, as a testimony to them, just as Moses commanded. However, the report went around concerning him all the more, and great multitudes came together to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. And in Luke chapter 8, verses 43 to 48, the healing continues. Now a woman, having a flow of blood for twelve years, who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped, and Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied it, Peter and those with him said, Master, 
The multitudes throng and press you, and you say, Who touched me? But Jesus said, Somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Now when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, Daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. His ability to feed the 5,000 out of almost nothing. Luke chapter 9, verses 13 to 17. But he said to them, You give them something to eat. And they said, We have no more than five loaves and two fish, unless we go and buy food for all these people. For there were about 5,000 men. Then he said to his disciples, Make them sit down in groups of fifty. And they did so, and made them all sit down. Then he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he blessed and broke them, and gave them to the disciples to set before the multitude. So they all ate and were filled, and twelve baskets of the leftover fragments were taken up by them. And his power over death itself, in Luke chapter 8, verses 51 to 56. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James and John, and the father and mother of the girl. Now all wept and mourned for him, but he said, Do not weep, she is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him, knowing that she was dead. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, saying, Little girl, arise. Then her spirit returned, and she arose immediately, and he commanded that she be given something to eat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus confronts his disciples with really two questions. First, what others thought of him. Next, what the disciples themselves thought. He didn't ask in order to learn something that he didn't already know. Rather, he asked in order to help them to understand that who he was would, in fact, demand from them a commitment that would cost everything. William Barclay comments in uh, The Gospel of Matthew, volume 2, page 161, Our knowledge of Jesus must never be at second hand. We might know every verdict ever passed on Jesus. We might know every Christology that human minds have ever thought out. We might be able to give a competent summary of the teaching about Jesus, of every great thinker and theologian, and still not be Christians. Christianity never consists in knowing about Jesus. It always consists in knowing Jesus. Jesus Christ demands a personal verdict. He did not ask only Peter. He asks every one of us. You, what do you think of me? End of quote. Our response to the question Jesus asked cannot be anything short of Peter's confession in Luke 9.20. Jesus is the Christ of God. Christ means the Anointed One, the Messiah, whose mission is not that of a political liberator, but the Saviour who will free humanity from the grip of Satan and sin and inaugurate the kingdom of righteousness. So to finish today, it's not enough simply knowing who Jesus is. Rather, we need to know him for ourselves. If then you claim to know Jesus... What in fact do you know about him? 
That is, what has your own personal knowledge of Jesus taught you about him and about what he is like? Thursday, April 16, The Transfiguration Question. Read all three Gospel accounts of the Transfiguration in Luke 9, Matthew 17, and Mark 9. Read also Peter's first-hand account of the incident and note the truth the Apostle establishes from his eyewitness experience in Second Peter. What additional information does Luke provide and why is it important? First of all, Luke chapter 9, verses 27 to 36. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the kingdom of God. Now it came to pass, about eight days after these sayings, that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he prayed, the appearance of his face was altered, and his robe became white and glistening. And behold, two men talked with him, who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. But Peter and those with him were heavy with sleep, and when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood by him. Then it happened, as they were parting from him, that Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying this, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were fearful as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. When the voice had ceased, Jesus was found alone. But they kept quiet and told no one in those days any of the things they had seen. It's also recorded in Matthew 17, verses 1 to 9. Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and do not be afraid. When they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And it's also recorded in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up on a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His clothes became shining exceedingly white, like snow, such as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them with Moses, and 
they were talking with Jesus. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here, and let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, because he did not know what to say, for they were greatly afraid. And a cloud came and overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my beloved Son, hear him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they saw no one any more, but only Jesus with themselves. Luke begins the narrative with a detail that Matthew and Mark do not mention. Jesus took Peter, John and James up the mountain to pray. Jesus set his eyes and mind toward Jerusalem and predicted the path of suffering that lay before him. Jesus wanted to be certain that what he was doing was what God wanted him to do. At such moments, prayer is the only way to find certainty and assurance. The process of prayer instantly poured out divine glory on the person of Jesus. As it said in Luke 9.29, his face was altered and his robe became white and glistening. The transfigured Jesus was in conversation with Moses and Elijah about his decease, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, verse 31. The word decease can be understood in two ways. His upcoming death in Jerusalem, although the Greek used here, Exodus, is not often used for death. Hence, decease can also mean the great Exodus Jesus was about to accomplish in Jerusalem, the mighty redemptive exodus that would bring about deliverance from sin. The conference of the three concluded with a voice of approval from heaven, This is my beloved Son, hear him, in verse 35. The transfiguration anoints Jesus with glory, assures his sonship once again, and announces that redemption will cost the Son's life. Therefore the heavenly command to the disciples, Listen to him. Without obedience and exclusive loyalty to him, there is no discipleship. So to finish today, Ellen White wrote that these men, meaning Moses and Elijah, who had been chosen above every angel around the throne, had come to commune with Jesus concerning the scenes of his suffering and to comfort him with the assurance of the sympathy of heaven. The hope of the world, the salvation of every human being, was the burden of their interview. End of quote from Desire of Ages, page 425. Thus, even Jesus himself, who had comforted so many others, sought solace and comfort for himself. What should that tell us about how even the strongest spiritually among us, even our leaders, teachers and guides, can at times need solace, encouragement and help from others? In fact, whom do you know right now who could use solace, comfort and encouragement. Friday, April 17. From the Seventh-day Adventist Bible Commentary, Volume 5, pages 1,128 and 1,129, Ellen White comments, Avoid every question in relation to the humanity of Christ which is liable to be misunderstood. Truth lies close to the track of presumption. 
In treating upon the humanity of Christ, you need to guard strenuously every assertion, lest your words be taken to mean more than they imply, and thus you lose or dim the clear perceptions of his humanity as combined with divinity. His birth was a miracle of God. Never in any way leave the slightest impression upon human minds that a taint of or inclination to corruption rested upon Christ, or that he in any way yielded to corruption. He was tempted in all points like as man is tempted, yet he is called that holy thing. It is a mystery that is left unexplained to mortals that Christ could be tempted in all points like as we are, and yet be without sin. The incarnation of Christ has ever been, and will ever remain, a mystery. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. 1. Read the statement above about the human nature of Christ. We must face the fact that Jesus' human nature, as with his divine nature, is a great truth that for now we will never fully fathom. As she wrote, the incarnation of Christ has ever been and will ever remain a mystery. Why then must we be very careful about making harsh judgments on those who don't necessarily understand this mystery the same way that we do? 2. Think about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. This amazing event in salvation history was about to happen, and what were the chosen disciples who came with him on the mountain doing at first? Sleeping. In what ways could this be a metaphor for ourselves as individual believers, or for us as a church, who live right before another great event in salvation history, the second coming of Jesus? And three, read some of the things that Jesus had said about himself. Why, then, is the idea that Jesus was merely a great man, a great prophet, or a great spiritual leader logically flawed? Why must we either accept that he is what he said he is, or that he was a lunatic and someone who was greatly deceived about himself? Why is there no other option for us in regard to the identity of Jesus? Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled The Under the Ground Bible. It's from a Chinese pastor. During the time of China's Cultural Revolution, it was very dangerous to own a Bible. Someone we knew, however, was able to obtain one. Since it was such a rare and precious book, he wanted to share it with as many people as possible so he carefully took the Bible apart and gave one or two books of the Bible to various Seventh-day Adventist families. Our family received the books of First and Second Samuel, and we read them again and again, treasuring every word. As a child, I enjoyed the many exciting stories contained in those two books. My older brother could write, so he copied the books by hand to share with others. A few years later, another Adventist found a very small Bible that had been put into a plastic bag and buried in the ground. Because of poor eyesight, the man wasn't able to read the small print, so he gave the Bible to me when I was 18. I was so excited. 
He was the complete Bible that I was holding in my hands for the very first time. This under-the-ground Bible became very precious to me, and I read it from the first chapter to the last more than ten times. I spent a lot of time with it, marking important passages and writing down some of my thoughts. I remembered my great-grandmother telling me about Noah when I was very young, but here I was at eighteen, reading about the flood for the first time. As I read the Bible, I started to understand what this book is about. I learned more about Jesus and his teachings. I discovered the truth in the Bible that can help us to have better lives. The more I read, the more interested I became. When I was twenty, I visited an area where most people knew nothing about the Bible. I was invited to speak to groups in various homes. I showed them my little Bible and shared them what I had learned from it. As word spread, I was invited to speak in many other homes as well. While sharing, I noticed that the young people, those in their mid-teens, were especially interested. They were so eager to learn that I wrote out 1,000 Bible texts and gave them to the young people who memorized the texts. I found this was an excellent way for them to learn the Bible. And now a short story from my own personal experience. When I was a doctor at the Hong Kong Adventist Hospital in Hong Kong in 1977, I was invited to visit a friend who worked in an embassy in Beijing. Well, my wife and I were about to go when I spoke to the president of the mission and said, surely they're short of Bibles. Could I take some Bibles in and give them to somebody? And he said, Percy, please don't do that, because... There, there are very few Europeans walking around in China, and wherever you go, you'll be watched. And if you take a Bible to an Adventist there, they may end up being in big trouble, and their lives may not be worth living. So please don't do it. Let us work through the channels that we have. And I respected him and left the Bibles behind. And I'm glad of that, because in one of the hotels we stayed at, there were Bibles in a case under glass in the foyer to indicate that Bibles had been taken in, but they'd been retrieved and held. Well, I hope you enjoyed the, the story from the pastor in China, and uh, I hope you enjoyed my little bit too. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr. Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.